Barbara Krejcikova is a Grand Slam champion. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo, and, well, I still... <laughs> I still can't believe it, and Joel's in Joel's in absolute fits of laughter. Joel Frucci joins me. Um, I thought for the bizarre two weeks that it was in Roland Garros, I thought let's start with a bizarre intro. Um, how are you? <laughs> Not bad, mate. That's up there with uh, with one of your best ones. It was a it was a bizarre couple of weeks at Roland Garros. It really was, but uh, yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, uh, soon. How are you, mate? I'm uh, I'm very well. Um, I'm very well, Joel. It's been a, it's been a big week, but um, no, we're slowly coming out of lockdown here in Melbourne. We do have a big show for you lined up. But of course, Barbara Krejcikova. She's a doubles Grand Slam champion. She actually won both. She did an amazing job at Roland Garros. We've got Luke Sable, who was in Paris. He's joining us. He's playing over in uh, Germany at the moment in the grass court season. So looking forward to chatting to him as well. And we'll talk about Novak Djokovic winning Grand Slam number 19 and the ultimate choke by Stefanos Tsitsipas in the finals. So we've got plenty to get through, Joel. And look, we'll start with the women's draw of Roland Garros because I I still can't believe what what we witnessed, really. We spoke to Josh Gabalish last week and we were talking about that quarterfinal that um, Coco Golf was playing at the time and I think it was against uh, Barbara Krejcikova um, and yeah. it, Golf led three love, had break points to go up four love, all of a sudden the match is over in straight sets and um, then over then she defeats Maria Sakari and then uh, Anastasia Pavlichenkova who I thought was the heavy favourite going into that final. And yeah, Pavlichenkova did play an extremely exciting brand of tennis and played so well. But the angles and the sheer ball striking panache, I guess, of Krejcikova was was really, it was, it was great. I really enjoyed watching it. It was the way that she hits the ball. It sort of, it was very reminiscent of Iga Swiatek in 2020 and the angles that she created. And yeah, I was really impressed. And she's only 25, so... She's really she's only in her fifth main draw of a singles Grand Slam to win one. It's just it's staggering beyond belief. I still can't get over it. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy looking back on it. Um, and it was really kind of befitting, I think, of the entire women's draw. It was a bit of a topsy turvy uh, draw on the WTA side, and it's not the first time we've seen that at Roland Garros. No, for for the women, but I guess that's why we love it. Um, because it does tend to throw up some surprises. But what impressed me most about uh, Barbara in the final against um, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova was how well she was defending. Her defensive skills are as good as anyone. She stayed in so many points and, matter of fact, ended up winning a lot of them. And that was important in a match like that because there were a lot of swings in momentum. Um, obviously, Barbara won the first set. Uh, then Anastasia really roared back into it, won the second. And then there was another sort of turning point where I'm not sure how much it affected the results in the end, but um, Anastasia did look a little hampered by, I think it was a, uh, I think it was like a thigh injury um, yeah. or a quad injury or, or something, uh, an upper leg injury. Um, and there was a comment by Yelena Dokic on the, uh, on the broadcast on Wild World of Sports talking about how, you know, that is your landing leg. Um, if you're a right-hander with the with um, and, and a right-footer with the left leg, um, so it can you know it can be quite a deterrent um, playing on that if it's a serious injury. So I'm not really sure how much that had to do with it, but 
yeah, take nothing away from from Barbara for an, a, you know an unseated player to to get all the way through uh, like she did is always always an achievement. Yeah, it really is. And look to beat uh, Christina Pliskova in the opening round, Ekaterina Alexandrova in the second round, Alina Svitolina in the third round, Sloane Stevens in the fourth round, Coco Golf in the quarters, Maria Sakari, who took out um, uh, Igish Fiontek in the quarterfinals to beat her 9-7 in the third and then to knock out Anastasia Pavlachenkova. It was an epic tournament from the Czech and it would have been far, far, far down the list of people that I would have thought would win this Grand Slam. It wouldn't have been even in the top 50 people that I would have thought would win this tournament. And she's come out and she's done it, which is so impressive. Um, and and look, the, the rankings-wise, she's jumped up a lot as well. And she's it, it's just, it's remarkable. She's 25 years old. She's now a Grand Slam champion. And she's moved up 13, no, she hasn't, not 13 spots. Where is the rankings here? I've lost them, Joel. 18 spots. <laughs> 18 spots to 15. I went straight past it. So from 33 to 15, she's in the top 15 in the world now. And look, she wouldn't. She doesn't have that many points to defend for the rest of the season. She's only in her fifth main draw, so I don't think she played Wimbledon last time out. So this is a this is a time when she can really try and solidify her place in that top fifteen and even progress even into the top ten. Yeah, she could do it. I mean, why wouldn't you back her? Because um, I've no doubt that this would go down um, as the best month of, of her life and. When you're flying on such a mental high like she is, winning a singles Grand Slam, winning a doubles Grand Slam as well, um, uh, that's that's incredible. And then cast your mind forward, looking at the top ten um, of the WTA. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily say that it's kind of um, set in stone or, or unbeatable for players, kind of just hovering a little bit below. I think there there's quite a few of them that are that are quite vulnerable, especially players. And we've spoken about them a lot, like. Carolina Pliskova or Alina Svitolina. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity there for for Barbara and and also even even uh, even a player like Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova again to, to go again at Wimbledon. Like if she does, I, I wouldn't be shocked. Exactly right. And look, it depends on what's happening with with the upper leg injury and how she's feeling after that. So that that also goes into you know that that also goes into question whether she actually can back up again for Wimbledon. But there's enough time, and I think I think with best of three sets, you should be able to back up. And if like if not, then you're not really conditioning overly properly. Whether it's best of five sets, it's a little bit different. But um, I, I, I'm just I'm stunned. And look, I think another another player who had a phenomenal draw was Maria Sakari to take out Igish Fiontek um, in the final and or in the semi-final or quarterfinal. Sorry, geez, how am I going? Um, it was she was supreme that night. And we we watched that after we recorded the show and we were both messaging each other just saying in the first set you could just tell she was on. She was getting involved um, and mm. and going deep into Fiontek's service games and Fiontek was holding firm, but as soon as that break came, the damn wall burst. And Sakari, just the sheer weight of shot, and everything was working for her. She was moving around the court well. She was stretching Fiontek in every way, shape, and form possible. And she was a really deserving winner. And I'm honestly surprised she didn't go on and win the tournament after that. Yeah, to be honest, so am I. Uh, the, the biggest thing for Maria, and it's always been the, the key component of her game battle, as we know, has been the aggression. Um, and when she gets that going, she's really hard to stop. And she was definitely on um, a, against Eager. 
against against uh, <clears throat> pardon me against Barbara though not not really I mean she was just a little bit off some of the some of the shots the heavy hitting were were just missing the missing the baseline by maybe a centimetre or two or or missing the tram lines or going into the tram lines I should say missing the singles line so um, overall though um, even though she didn't quite get up and no doubt she'll be disappointed but um, especially after going you know quite away. In that match, deep into the third, she did no doubt be disappointed, as anyone would, to, to fall over in the semi-finals. But I really hope that this is kind of the making of Marie Sakari. Um, obviously, we've seen down the journey that a lot of players they they find they have a breakthrough moment where it all kind of just starts to click for them. I really hope that this French Open is that for her because she's got the assets. We know that she's a well-rounded player. Um, her let's face it, her physique is just absolutely incredible um so if she can put all that together then um she'd be a player that's hard to stop and coming onto the grass as well uh if she can really hit the hit the spots then um she'll be another one that you can throw into the mix it'll be um that'll be up there because um that heavy hitting on grass if it works it's it's going to be uh it's going to be difficult to, to, uh, to run with. Yeah, Wimbledon is another Grand Slam where I think we're going to, we can safely say we can blanket over probably 20 or 30 players that could win this tournament. And after what we've seen with Roland Garros yet again, um, I think we're going to be in for a really wild ride with that draw. But we'll move on to the men's section now as well. And look, um, not going to lie, pretty disappointed with the result. Um, came after Richmond lost an absolutely... Uh, devastating game on Sunday night, and then Sefanot Tsitsipas gave me like a little bit of hope that we were going to have someone new win a Grand Slam. But now I, I'm starting to think that with the beatdowns that Thomas Burdich copped, that Richard Gasquet has copped, that David Ferrer copped, that Joe Wilfried Songer has copped, I'm starting to think that this new wave of Tsitsipas, Medvedev, uh, Zverev, and all of these guys are still going to have to wait until the big three either get injured fall over or retire because what happened with Stefano Tsitsipas, 7-6-6-2, wins the first two sets, plays some sublime tennis, and then Novak Djokovic just went to, well, went up another 10 gears. Yeah, he did. He did. And we spoke a bit about it in the wake of the whole Naomi Osaka thing, though. We touched on Novak and, and how mentally strong he is. I'm just going to say it straight up now. He, honestly, is the single best player I've ever seen between the years. Yeah. It is incredible how resilient this guy is. It, it, it really is. And we should obviously clarify that at this point, it's no surprise. We already knew that. But he just shows time and time again that tennis is not over until it's over. Because uh, Stefanos going two sets, uh, going into the third set, uh, third set two love up um, in a Grand Slam final, um, a lot of players, maybe with, I'd say potentially with the exception of maybe Rafa on clay, you pretty much take it to the bank. He's going to win. Um, but when he went two sets to love up, you you just you just knew, you just knew. I certainly I certainly felt as though he wasn't safe yet. Um, and then when when Novak got the early break in the third, um, that really kind of solidified it for me. I, uh, like I went, I think I went to bed during the the third set um, after the double break came up because I was just exhausted and needed to go to bed but at that point you could you just knew that Novak was was in the groove he was he was back to feeling himself he's been in that position probably hundreds of times before you could just tell that that Novak was was ready just just to steamroll home and that's that's exactly what he did 
Yep, and exactly right. And I'm going to go through our texting conversation here, Joel, because we were texting uh, throughout the throughout the um, throughout the match. Um, and you said yes, rattle him. And I was like, oh, Novak looks angry. How many on the line? Um, and then Novak touching the line so many times and complete uh, continuing to go through. Um, and then you've got oh, G. Steph has pulled out some doozies on break points. And then all of a sudden there was. There'll be a landslide of games dropped if Steph drops this one. And then beyond that was, he's going to win. He's going to win. <laughs> Novak is going to win. And this was after Steph Tsitsipas is up a break, uh, is up two sets to love and down a break in the third. We knew, we picked it, we were right. And unfortunately, just between the years, Stefano Tsitsipas just wasn't right and looked a bit fatigued and Djokovic went up and up and you're right he is the strongest player I think we've ever seen in between the years and and mentally what he's been able to conjure up throughout his entire career not just in this match but in other grand slams where against Federer he's been down two sets to love Federer's had match points and um and Nadal's been up a break in the fifth against him and so many other players have been in these positions and he's just been able to come back and and beat them um and time and time again and we just know that Novak Djokovic is never going to lie down. And one thing that I do want to ask you, Joel, is so Stefano Tsitsipas took to social media afterwards. He was obviously devastated and for good reason. He did lose the match, but he also lost his grandmother five minutes before the final started. Yeah. Now, not to sound, well, not to not to be a little bit heartless, but do you think it was a good idea to actually tell him before the match? And what do you think the reasoning behind it was? Um, I think it's. I think it was a horrible idea. Yeah, obviously it's easy to say in context, and and clearly we're not close to Stefanos, so we can't be sure how he was going to react. But you can really only go off kind of natural inhibition and, and kind of guess how someone is going to react to that news. You're, you're clearly going to be devastated. So, you know, to, to find out uh, to find out five minutes before he steps on court, I, I don't think is ideal. Um, I think uh, clearly, clearly, Steph is a very family-oriented guy, and I think the fact that um, Apostolos, his his dad, is still his coach, I think speaks a lot to that as well. Um, so it was always, I think, going to affect him. Um, it's a tough subject, admittedly, because whoever had the responsibility of telling him probably had this moral dilemma of, you know, do I break it to him now um, instead of withholding it? Because some people don't like that kind of information being withheld, mm. but. Yeah, it's it's really hard to argue in favour of uh, of of going down the path of what happened and telling him before the match because I have no doubt that that would have really rocked him. Um, it's like I don't know, you don't you don't want to go into any situation that important where this is the biggest match of his career. Uh, you know, being told so 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 soon before the game that someone that you love has has passed away. You've gone through your, your routine, you've had your preparation, and then suddenly you get this completely unexpected news that throws everything. I, I have a feeling that really would have would have rocked him, not only mentally, but his, his preparation as well. So, yeah, from that point of view, um, yeah, I, I think you've got to say that it probably wasn't the best idea for him to uh, have found out um, before the match. Uh, and look, Joel, I agree 100% with everything you've said there, and I think the adrenaline with that Stefanos would have had in his heart and in his mind and, and in his whole body would have carried him through those first two sets. But then when you get up two sets to love and you realize, oh my God, I'm one set away from being a, a Grand Slam champion, the emotions start to sink in. And I think that's what 
probably was his undoing at the end right there. And then also you look back at his semi-final against Alexander Zverev. He's also up two sets to love there. Zverev comes back and forces it to five and um, Tsitsipas does hold on. But those demons are also going to be in the back of your mind as well. That Tsitsipas, you know, when it's two sets to love, the job isn't over. And he just, I think, panicked a little bit and his weight of shot changed and he just didn't look comfortable on the court anymore. And it was such a flick of a switch that Novak just made him feel not at home. He made him feel foreign in one of his best environments. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's what Novak Djokovic does. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. That's that's what he does. That's what he does. Even in the first two sets when it wasn't quite coming off for him and, and Steph was feeling good, it was the same Novak where mm. he just he just makes you play one more, one more, one more again. And eventually, especially if you're starting to doubt yourself and feel a little bit shaky and if you've got that kind of extra baggage, that, I guess, unusual baggage of just being told that a family member has passed away, it's probably all going to build up. And then when you just have to keep hitting and keep hitting and keep hitting, it's kind of like, what more do I have to do? What more do I have to do? And then you, you take the risk and it doesn't always come off. Yeah. And, yeah, just unfortunately for Steph, um, you know, obviously he's still young, but he just doesn't quite have the endurance yet that, that Novak does, which is just absolutely, I mean, I think at this point elite is still an understatement. Yeah, and to come off that epic semifinal against Nadal where they played for over four hours and that, yeah, it was to come back and do what he did against someone 13 or 12 years his junior, it's just, it, it's absolutely staggering. And he becomes the first man to win both uh, all four slams more than once in the open era. And he joined, well, he gets the 19 now. So he's only one behind Roger and Rafa. So we get to a scenario where at the US Open in 2021, we could have a battle of all three of them on the same number, which is just unbelievable. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Wimbledon brings. I don't know if Djokovic will be able to win it again, but look, we'll see. He looks in absolutely dominant form at the moment, but um, the grass courts of Wimbledon, and especially after he did the um, after he did the Australian Open French Open double last time, Sam Querrey came out and knocked him out in the third round of Wimbledon when he looked absolutely invincible. So I'm looking forward to seeing what we're going to see at Wimbledon. But yeah, it, it was an an amazing French Open, one that I don't think anybody expected. Um, in terms of results and in terms of narratives and in terms of everything that did occur. So a brilliant two weeks in Roland Garros. Joel, it's time to get to Luke Saville. And we do have him here from Frankfurt. Luke Saville, world number 35 in doubles and half of the slugs. And he's been traveling around Europe for a few months now. And good to have you back, Luke. How are you going? Thanks, Val. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, not too bad, mate. Um, yeah, taking a few days off here in Frankfurt. Um, it's been a pretty... Uh, Pretty long, hard slog so far here in Europe. Um, started in the States, um, Mexico actually, in Acapulco, and then on to Miami, and then here um, to Europe. So it's been a, uh, it's been it's been good. Um, you know, traveling in in COVID times is a little bit tricky, um, no doubt about that. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the flights you need, um, you know, you need COVID tests and. Uh, there's a few um, few sort of restrictions and, and sort of stuff like that. But, um, you know, once, once you get your head around that um, and, you know, just, just uh, I guess, keep reminding yourself that, you know, you're over here um, for business. You're, you know, I'm playing tennis, doing doing what I love over here. So, um, you know, I think, I think perspective is a, big, is a big thing as well that I try to keep, you know, reminding myself. Um, you know, I, I love playing tennis and, and over here and there's, uh, you know, people doing it 
a fair bit harder in the world right now. So, um, you know, playing a lot of the big events. Um, so I feel um, you know, very grateful to be doing what I'm doing. Well, you have been playing some big events, Luke, and Roland Garros, one of those, and losing, unfortunately, to the number two seeds in Juan Sebastian Cabal and Robert Farah. But two really big wins, the first round against Albano Olivetti and Gregor Barrer, uh, that was an absolutely epic encounter. And then against Raven Klaassen and Ben McLaughlin, the 15th seeds. Um, you and Max haven't been able to play too many events so far this year because he stayed in Australia a little bit longer. But are you starting to find that real synergy that you guys had leading, leading into the Australian Open last year? And how confident are you of a big showing in the grass season? Uh, yeah, it was um, it was a good run in Paris. Um, yeah, like you said, Max decided to stay back in Australia for um, you know a couple more months, and I came over here um, you know, a few weeks after the Australian Open. Max just wasn't quite up to traveling yet in these COVID times, um, and he just wanted a little bit more training with his coach Nathan Healy back um, on the Central Coast. So uh, yeah, I feel like we started to um, find that sort of chemistry. Um, you know, at, at the French, um, we played a few events leading up and we had some good wins. Um, but I guess our form was a little inconsistent. But uh, yeah, I mean, we had an absolute epic first round of the French. Um, you know, I think we saved three matches in that third set tie break. Um, I was 15-40 serving at four all in the third. And a real, real coin flip there, complete coin flip. And we've been on the fair share um, of the losing side of those. So... To get the win there was obviously um, a real buzz. We were, we were pretty pumped with that one um, because even though they were wild cards, they were playing a really high level. Um, so we thought um, we always knew French wild cards at the at Roland Garros are very dangerous, and um, there was no no different there. And then uh, then the second round, um, we sort of we got torched the first set, um, and then um, a bit of a tactical change really turned that match around. We just started lobbing lobbing a lot and sort of turned it into a bit more of a, a singles match, if you like. We started playing a lot more from the baseline and um, trying to use our ground strokes and go, I guess, around the guys. Um, they were serving very well in the first set, but we managed to turn that around, which was, um, you know, we're very happy about that. Um, and then in the third round, the first time we played those two guys, um, you know, one of the best teams in the world. We weren't too far off, but, you know, I guess, honestly, the, the better team won the day. They served well. They didn't really give us anything, to be honest. We lost our serve once a set, um, and they just didn't really let us back into it. So it was nice to play them for the first time and just to see what they do well. Um, but, uh, yeah, all, all in all, obviously we'd like to have kept them going. It goes without saying. But, um, you know, if you said the third round, um, it's a pretty pretty strong showing as well. And when you, when you get to the clay court season, how does that affect – well, how do you prepare for that? Because, obviously – Australia is not as prominent as it once was on the clay courts of, uh, of Europe. But how do you prepare? Do you enjoy going over and playing on the clay or is it a season that you kind of just want to get through before you get to grass and hard where the Australians tend to do a little bit better? Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of that mindset. All the Aussies are really keen to get on the on the, on the the grass. Um, you know, I played in Stuttgart last week and um, unfortunately, it's a, it's a shorter grass court season this year, so you're, you're hearing a few complaints from the Aussies. Um, but obviously, this year is um, unlike any that we've ever experienced. Um, obviously, it was an extended clay court season. Um, I think I played sort of eight weeks on the clay, so that was, that was very long. Um, obviously, doubles is a little bit different on the clay than, than pure singles. There's 
Um, you know, it's a lot more grinding, a lot longer points. And yeah, historically, Aussies haven't been the greatest on clay. Um, I, I don't mind it. Um, it's it's definitely a little, still a little bit different playing doubles on it. Um, but, you know, my mindset, I try and embrace everything. Um, you know, I think goes without saying, everyone knows that clay's not my favourite surface, but, um, you know, I gave it a I gave it a crack. We finished um, strongly at the French. I had a few decent results there uh, on the clay, um, but you'd ask most Aussies and we're all very excited to sort of get on the grass here in Germany and in, in the UK and, and really give that a crack. Yeah, you guys had an amazing tournament in uh, at Roland Garros. And another... Another match that you had there was in the mixed doubles in the opening round with uh, Gabby Dabrowski. And you took on Aslan Karatsev and Alina Viznina, who have actually gone on to make the final of, of uh, Roland Garros. But talk to me, and Karatsev has been the feel-good story of 2021. Talk to us from the other side of the court. I know it's in doubles and it's a little bit different, but what does he do well from the other side of the net that you can that you look at and go, geez, he's, there's a reason he's had such a good season? Yeah, yeah, Karatsa is an amazing story. I, I actually, I watched Max, um, Max Perso, my doubles partner, play him at the French Open Qualies last year. And obviously it was in, uh, it was in September. So, you know, I guess sort of eight months on. Um, and at that time he was ranked around one, uh, 130. And then now he's, you know, 25 in the world. And I've actually, he's my age. So I played juniors with him. I've got a very good relationship with him, actually. He's a, he's a nice guy. He's, um, he's actually quite quiet off the court, um, but he, he means business on the court. You know, sort of even when we're playing mix, I was expecting a few sort of smiles and um, a little bit of banter with him, but there wasn't too much of that. It was, it was all pretty serious. And um, and yeah, I mean, playing against him, that was uh, I double faulted to him on one of the juice points because it's male versus male when, when you're serving on the juice. So that wasn't that wasn't great, but. I was kind of fortunate to be in the mixed doubles draw. Dabrowski was supposed to play with Mate Pavic, uh, the number one doubles player in the world, who then tested positive for COVID. So I got a message from her saying she'd like to repair with me. So that was that was a good experience. And yeah, I guess back to Kratsev, he's, um, he's, you know, I think he's probably the biggest ball striker on tour. Um, well, definitely top three. Um, you know, him, Baslash, Philly, and... You know, a few guys like that, um, you know, off the off both sides, forehand, backhand. There's no real weakness, um, and then even his serve, he was popping that down, and um, you know, sending down a fair share of aces against us. And but uh, you know, the mixed doubles is always fun. Um, they, uh, you know, four and two, they got us pretty easily. But uh, now they're in the final, and in the men's doubles, about far in the semis. So. Um, you look at that, you don't look too much into it, but you know that you know, the guys that you've lost to are in good form. Yeah, no, they're playing amazing tennis. But um, moving on uh, to your or your immediate future on the grass, um, you're a junior Wimbledon champion back, I think it was in 2011, if I'm if I'm correct. And um, what do you love about the grass and going back? And obviously, you said before that the Australians have such a strong a strong affiliation with um, with the surface. Um, what excites you most about getting back onto the grass? You played Stuttgart, unfortunately, going down in a close one to James Duckworth in uh, in qualifying, and then uh, in the doubles, you and Jordan Thompson again in a tight one, falling to um, the German pair of Hampton and Kepfer. But what do you love about the surface, and um, what excites you most about it? Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was brought up on the grass um, in the Ribland region in South Australia. We have a lot of grass there, and I think it, it just suits my game 
very well. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm playing doubles predominantly at the moment, but I haven't given up on the singles on my singles career. And when the tour sort of opens up a little bit there and, and post Olympics, I'll start playing some more singles again. Um, but yeah, for the meantime, just focus on the doubles. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it as well, a lot of Europeans and I guess everyone outside of Australia and the UK don't really play on it much. And, you know, Australians are really brought up on it and, and the Brits as well. So that's a big advantage, you know, because it's obviously just, it's just different. It's unlike any other surface. You've got to be able to adapt. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously fast. It's low bouncing. It's, it's tricky to move on. So if you feel comfortable, first and foremost, with, you know, the grass under your feet, that's, I think, very important. Um, and, you know, it, it obviously um, helps. It benefits um, an aggressive game style. And that's, you know, that's sort of how I play. I return well, um, put a lot of returns back in, do enough to, you know, hopefully hold my serve enough. Um, and then, obviously, just try and get to the net and finish points up there. So, yeah, I've had success on grass. It's by far my best surface. Um, so... It's disappointing they won't play many singles matches um, on the grass. Ducks and I actually played on indoor hard, so wasn't able to get on the on the grass because the weather was poor there. But um, and the UK, I, I very much enjoy just the UK. It's yeah. it's you know a lot like Australia, obviously, um, and, and Wimbledon is just an amazing tournament to be part of as well. Wimbledon qualies on the cards at all? Nah, because uh, yeah, it's the, you know that cuts sort of around two fifty, and, and my singles ranking is around four hundred now. I haven't played um, you know really any singles matches since um, since the restart of the tour. Well, I guess since March twenty twenty, so the rankings fallen away a bit. But I'll um, you know I'll sort of start to focus on that again uh, probably uh, the back half of this year. How frustrating has that been for you in terms of the COVID situation that you haven't been able to focus as much? on your singles has that annoyed you at all or is it something that you sort of plan to focus on doubles for a bit and then get back to singles i think so yeah i wouldn't say it's annoying i think um you know our run at the australian open has really um, forced our hand a little bit in, in mm. terms of having to having to go the doubles route in in the short term i think um you know, uh, ideally, I'd like to still be playing singles, but when you um, when you make a final of a slam and your doubles ranking goes to 40, I think you have to really take advantage of that, which, yeah. you know, Max and I did. Um, and then, you know, sort of after the Aussie, the COVID break um, for six months happened, and then we came back, restarted um, in September at the US Open, and we were second in the race. So I kind of felt like um, we'd be a little bit silly to not... Um, capitalize on that and, and try and play and make London. In, in the end, we were, you know, fell sort of um, too short. We were second alternate. And then I guess this year as well, um, you know, I've, you know, my doubles rank is around 30 now. And um, obviously, Olympics is, is right on my radar as well. So that's why I've been playing a lot of doubles. I came over here to try and get as highly ranked as possible to put my hand up for selection for the Olympics. Um, and we'll know in a few days about that. Um, so I'm, I'm still hopeful there. But uh, I wouldn't say it's frustrating or annoying. Um, it, it is what it is. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, on one hand, very fortunate that I'm able to play a lot of these big events in the doubles because I've been getting a lot of good singles hits um, with, with singles players and um, just being around these guys, seeing what they're doing, being able to play against Kratsev, even in a mixed doubles format, is, um, is a great experience if I, you know, if I can start to gain momentum in the singles and then hopefully play them on the singles court in the future. 
Well, we certainly hope you do on uh, on Breakpoint. But the, you mentioned the Olympics. How important would that be or how much would that mean to you to get Olympic representation? You played ATP Cup at the start of the year and have that taste for playing with the green and gold on. How much would that mean to you to head out onto the onto the Tokyo courts at the Olympics and represent your country at the at the Olympic Games? Yeah, it's um, it's probably you know one of my biggest goals that and Davis Cup um, representing Australia is something I've dreamed of you know since I was a kid. Um, the ATP Cup was on a smaller scale, but that was so much fun. Um, really enjoyed sort of putting the the green and gold colours on and just playing for a team, um, just being in a team environment. Um, and the Olympics has just been a huge goal um, for the first half of this year. Uh, that's why I sort of came over and just played a really heavy schedule. I haven't taken a week off yet, so um, that's why I'm enjoying a few days of just downtime now, just to freshen up a little bit ahead of the grass season. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, if I, whoever I, you know, if I get selected, whoever I get teamed with, it's just uh, it's just going to be a huge buzz. Yeah, there's, there's not much you can really say about it. It's a it's been a massive goal, and and you know, watching the Olympics as a young fella, um, always, you know, always dreamed of potentially getting a getting a run at the Olympics, and for it now to be a maybe a reality is um, a dream come true. Will you get the tattoo? <laughs> no, nah, I don't think I'll do the uh, do the Jordan Thompson Tomo, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll see. But uh, it's uh, no doubt going to be um, some strange circumstances there in Tokyo. A few um, you know protocols and stuff to abide by, but it's still the Olympic Games, and I really hope I can get selected. And one more before we do let you go, Luke. Um, who do you miss more, Daria or Tofu? Uh, my boy, my boy <laughs> <Tofu>. <laughs> uh, there's been a few uh, video surfacing of uh, of Dasha posting. Um, I think he, what does he do? He moves his um, he moves his paws up and down. Yeah, he kind of he kind of waves. That's yeah. his that's his trick, and uh, we've never seen it in another dog. So yeah, um, I'll, I'll FaceTime every day, and she puts him straight on, so she knows she knows the priority. Yeah, she knows and. <laughs> She also posted a video of you waving that gorgeous mullet uh, behind you, um, riding your yeah. scooter. Um, that is that is absolutely fantastic. How long have you been growing that out? Um, yeah, it's been a while. I think I shaved my head um, pretty much to a one, basically the start of COVID last yeah. year, around sort of April. Um, and then I've just sort of been grooming this a little bit over the last probably six months. But I'm I'm tossing out whether to start fresh start fresh over the next couple of days. So um, I'm not I'm not sure. Maybe maybe you could put a poll out to the viewers. I'm, yep. not, I'm not sure what to do there. I think we're going to be doing that after the show. So should Luke Savile keep the mullet? I at least want you to keep it for Wimbledon, Luke. At least Wimbledon. Okay. okay. At least do that. Because I don't think I don't think many people have rocked the mullet on the All England Club grass since probably the eighties when John McEnroe and uh, Beyond Borg were had the long hair. So <laughs> I reckon it'd be it'd be time to bring it back. But Luke Savile, you are truly the nicest guy in tennis, and it's great to have you on the show again. World number thirty five in doubles. Fingers crossed, we see that ranking skyrocket even more, and also in the singles as well. You deserve it, mate. You've worked really hard to get to where you are in your career. And hopefully we do see that success bear fruit later on this season and in years to come. But good luck at Wimbledon and thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks, Val. Thanks for having you guys. Appreciate it. There you have it, Luke Savile. Jeez, he is, and as I said in the interview, the nicest guy in tennis. He's an absolute superstar. I'm spewing you couldn't be there for the chat, Joel, but he's uh, um, he's an absolute legend of a human being. And yeah, can't wait to 
Can't wait to see what he can do on the grass at Wimbledon. He does love the surface. And um, look, what do you reckon? Should he keep? Should he keep the mullet? Absolutely, he should keep it. He's a graceful man, and it's a graceful haircut. He should absolutely keep it. Bringing a uh, bringing a bit of uh, bringing a bit of um, a bit of uh, blase to Wimbledon. Exactly right, and and look, that's what I want to see. I want to see at the All England Club. I want to see Luke Savile and Max Purcell, the slugs, lifting the trophy, and I want to see that mullet just shaking in the breeze of the London air. <laughs> like, how does that sound? The most traditional place in tennis with a mullet as a champion. <laughs> oh, they're not—they're not, they're not going to know what hit them, the Londoners. They're very—they're uh, very. Hmm, how should I put this? Not mullety in. Uh, no, they're not out in that part of uh, out in that part of London. It's a very. Very upstanding area, shall we say? It is, it is, and yeah, I'm uh, I'm very excited to see that because I really hope it does. So let's get a poll out on Twitter after the show. Um, we're going to say should Luke Savile keep the mullet for Wimbledon? And look, he said it's up to our listeners. Our listeners will have the say, and don't worry, Luke Savile. We hope you keep the mullet. We really, really do. But Joel, it is time for our Benoit of the week, and we haven't really discussed it. Um, have we? We haven't really. Let's just throw it up in the air. I've got someone in mind, but I want to see if you've got anybody in mind as well. We might be able to give a double Benoit based on how bizarre last week was. I think we could even we could even go from go and give a double. What do you reckon? Are we okay. feel are we feeling giving? Are we feeling like a Benoit Santa Claus? Yeah, why not? We're wrapping up a Grand Slam, so we'll, we'll, we'll give a double. So I mean, the the the, the person that's uh, front and center in my mind is. There's only one person for it, and that's it's got to be Barbara <laughs> Barbara Krejcikova. After winning Roland Garros in the singles and winning Roland Garros in the doubles, what a great yeah. two weeks! That's all yeah. I have to say. Congratulations! Oh, it's it's phenomenal, and yeah, congratulations. I've got another one uh, for you, Joel. His name is okay. Jack Draper, and he's managed Draper. to get through to the quarterfinals of the ATP 500 event at Queens. We know how coveted the Queens Club Championships is and all the famous names that have won it in Hewitt, in Roddick, in Murray, in Nadal, in so many others and so many esteemed names in tennis history. And Jack Draper has come out. He's knocked off Yannick Sinner in straight sets. And then he's come out and beaten yep. Alexander Bublik in straight sets. The guy is sitting at a ranking of 390. He's 19 years old and he's come out and he's done this in his home country at one of at the second biggest tournament in the country. Phenomenal effort from young Jack Draper and hopefully we can see him continue and he'll take on uh, Cam Norrie in the uh, in the quarterfinals who defeated Aslan Karatsev in the second round. Alex Dimonor still in that tournament as well. Knocked off John Millman in the, uh, the all-Aussie encounter there. But before we do go, Joel, we've given the Benoits, we've done all the all of the um, formalities. But one thing I want to ask you, Roger Federer last night, falling to Felix Auger-Aliassime, won the first set 6-4, but then lost the next 6-3, 6-2. What have you made of his return to grass? And has it shocked you a little bit, considering how well he played at Roland Garros and the fact that he got to the fourth round? Um, no, not really. Not really. I mean, again, you're moving on to uh, you're moving on to a new surface for the season. So, obviously, we know how good Roger is on on grass. Um, so maybe in that in that respect, it's a bit of a surprise. But I don't think you can really underestimate Felix as well. 
uh, on the grass. Obviously, lost another final against uh, Marin Cilic, so that's uh, that would be weighing on his mind, I would have thought. But with the game that Felix has, I don't think you can really underestimate just how good he can be on grass, and I think we saw that firsthand against uh, against Roger. Yep, well, last week, uh, Auger Aliassi made the Stuttgart final and lost to Marin Cilic, so he's now zero from eight in finals, Joel. Still hasn't won a set. Incredible. How, how bizarre is that? He's got such quality. And now, of course, I would much rather him have won that bloody final last week than beaten Roger, but oh well. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, yeah, look, honestly, I'm a little bit disappointed in Vettera's return to grass because the way he played on the clay was quite impressive. Look, maybe maybe he's trying to still conserve some energy for Wimbledon and get that match practice in, but he only had one breakpoint opportunity in three sets of tennis. He managed to take it and win the first set 6-4, but he faced 15 of his own, and that doesn't happen often with Roger Federer. He usually serves a little bit better, and it was the same against Ilya Ivashka on uh, on Monday night, and there was a little bit of a concern there in the way that he played, and you know he wasn't really getting involved into Ivashka's service games and was relying on his own serve to really to dominate, and the ground strokes weren't quite there. There's still a lot of rust, so... I'm honestly, I'm not very confident on his Wimbledon chances or even getting far into the tournament, which is a bit of a worry. Yeah, it's a little bit hard to know. Um, you know really, when any player comes back after that length of time out, not least a 39-year-old, it's it's pretty hard to predict. Um, I guess the thing that Roger's got going for him is that he's Roger. So yeah. um, you know, he, could, he could realistically just, with a flick of a switch, um, you know, go to maybe 2017 Australian Open levels, um, or, well, just 20, 2017 levels, generally speaking, but not so sure he will. But anyway, it's a bit of a wait and see. I'm, I'm still excited to, uh, to see him on, uh, on grass again. So am I. So hopefully Wimbledon does go well. But, uh, Joel, thank you very much for your efforts today. It's been an absolute pleasure reviewing another Grand Slam with you. How many is that that we've done on the show so far? I reckon, oh, jeez. I'm going to go through and calculate this, how many Grand Slams we've actually looked at and all the different champions that we've seen and um, and all, everything along those lines. I think we've done 2015 US Open, I think, was the first one we did. So it's been a long time. So I'd like to see how many we've done. But thank you again. Another Grand Slam is in the books. Barbara Krejcikova and Novak Djokovic, the two champions. Yeah, no, pleasure, mate. Never a chore. And, uh, yeah, another just quick wait that my nomination to the Crow outside my window gets stuffed. Thanks for ruining the show. <laughs> nah, but, uh, <laughs> nah, it's been good, mate. I'll, I'll see, you, see, you, see you when I see you. Oh, and that's it. I've lost it. That's it. It's a great end of the show. But, um, look, an update from our point of view as well. We've uh, we've changed our streaming services from Wooshka to Anchor, so we thank Wooshka for everything that they've helped us do over the years, but you can still find us. So we're on Anchor. You can subscribe on there, but we're still on Apple Podcasts. We're on Anchor now, so subscribe on there if you can. I already mentioned that. Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, or just copy the RSS feed as well. But um, also still on Spotify, also still on Apple, also still on Google, as we always have been. And you can follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, and Facebook at Breakpoint Pod for Twitter, Breakpoint Podcast on Instagram, and Breakpoint uh, Podcast on Facebook. So search us all there. We're still in all your good podcast locations and on the live Tennis Scores app as well. We're all on there. So remember to tune in, remember to subscribe, remember to like, remember to follow, and remember to listen. It's been Val Febo and Joel Frucci taking you through everything Roland Garros 2021. Bring on the grass.